This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be looking back on the year with BOH editors, but first, we're going to catch up on the news, including a big turnaround in interest rates, Australia's ban on engineered stone, and a new study on Gen Z's love of dupes. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Home's executive editor, Fred Nicolaus. Hi, Fred. Hi, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? Doing good. Sort of, you know, careening towards the end of the year, <laughs> fueled by sugar and wine. Uh, are you uh, looking forward to a little bit of a break from the Thursday show and the podcast? What do you think? I don't know what I'm going to do, Fred, during these two weeks <laughs> off. I really am quite concerned about my mental health during the next few weeks. I'm looking forward to a bunch of texts about RH's stock price. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll have to keep you up to date on all the things you're missing while you're hopefully relaxing. Yes, that was a little teaser for the fact that we will be taking a break. We'll be back on uh, January 4th with our next uh, our next show. But in the meantime, let's get down to business. So we had a, uh, an interview on Monday with Brooks Morrison, the founder of the Design Social series of pop-ups. Uh, from what I hear, a very fun series of events. I've never been. I'm hopeful, hopeful I can make it to one in 2024. What do you think, Dennis? Well, they're going to be in Darien, Connecticut for two days in 2024. So I'm hoping that you <laughs> and I can get up there together and, and hopefully uh, have a good time. I don't know what we'll wear. The uh, The dress code is uh, <laughs> a lot of flowered dresses. So I don't know how you and I will, will fit in there. But honestly, a few people come to mind who have done more to help the small fabric and wallpaper industry, I feel, than Brooks Morrison and her design social. She is so well-liked and uh, and so well-respected that uh, I was glad that we finally got her on the show. One little fun takeaway I, I took away from the conversation was, you know, the prior week we'd had Chad Stark to talk about, like, all this, like, complexity around pricing transparency and why they're showing some prices and not others. And it was a very sort of naughty, intricate conversation. And then, you know, you sort of asked the same question of Brooks, like, do your company show their prices? And she's like, no. <laughs> designers don't want them to, so they don't do it. And I'm like, okay, so maybe it's not so complicated after all. Anyway, it was a good conversation and uh, definitely got me excited for our upcoming Thursday show field trip to the Design Social that it sounds like you already have planned for us. So I'll, I'll look forward to that one in the, in the new year. I think that's going to be so fun if we're all there. I look forward to that. Okay, we're going to get to the news in just a moment, but first, a quick break. We're taking a quick break from the show to tell you about Business of Home's Insider Program, and who better to do that than BOH's Editor-in-Chief, Caitlin Peterson. Hey, Caitlin. Hi, Dennis. So, Caitlin, at a high level, tell us what this BOH Insider Program is all about. BOH Insider is our membership community. It's where we offer our readers the opportunity to connect even more closely with our coverage. That's going to include things like a subscription to BOH Magazine, um, it's access to a weekly curriculum of virtual workshops. It's also going to be discounts on some of the offerings on the site that can help you grow your business. So that could be a post on our job board or a listing on our collections vertical for a brand that really wants to showcase its latest line to designers. And I feel like I'm hearing a lot about the field trips that are going on recently. Tell me about that. It's pretty exciting. We've got this new program called Field Trips, where we're offering inside access to a lot of amazing industry resources. We've hosted three so far far all in New York. Um, you know, we took a decorative painting workshop with some of the insiders. We visited a bespoke furniture atelier. Um, we also just recently toured the P.E. Guerin foundry in the West Village, and we were able to see the centuries-old sand casting technique happening at a workshop in the heart of the city, which was 
pretty extraordinary. The, the idea of the whole program is really to, to offer that inside access, to offer that inspiration, um, and to present, you know, just one more way to get up close and personal with some of the, the beauty and the magic of the design industry. We are also taking the program international in January. So I'm excited to announce that we've got a member-only event coming up in Paris. Um, and that'll be just in time for designers' trips to the city for Maison and Objet and Deco Off. So stay tuned for that. Well, that sounds really exciting. So if, if designers want to sign up for the next one, where should they go? You can learn more about the program and sign up at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. And that's going to give you instant access to the great discounts I was talking about. It gets you an archive of our past workshops. And it also means you'll be on the list when we announce the details of that trip to Paris. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Great to be here. Okay, we're back. First up on the agenda, Fred, interest rates. <laughs> Let's end the year on a fun note. <laughs> interest rates. Nearly two years after the Fed set out to cool inflation by a series of escalating interest rate hikes, the campaign may soon be coming to an end because in a meeting last week, they announced that rates would hold steady and that there may even be rate cuts coming in 2024. Uh, cue exuberance. What do you think, Dennis? Yeah, exactly. Cue runaway enthusiasm. Buy all those furniture retail stocks that you can. Buy all those beaten down real estate companies that you can, because once again, the Federal Reserve is riding into the rescue and going to save all those troubled industries. Uh, although they quickly walked it back a few days later and said, not yeah. so fast. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but they, but they did suggest uh, that they are they are perhaps uh, done raising rates, and and they did reveal that internally they had some some dot plots as they refer to them that show that they really are seeing rates lower by the end of 2024. The stock market rode to new all time highs, and uh, and everyone seems to feel like uh, like good times are here again. It may feel a little bit strange for us to talk so much about interest rates on this show, but they're they're very, very important because so much of the reason why the housing market has been frozen is because they've been high, which makes mortgages expensive, which makes people not want to move. And so any indication that that number is coming down means that it's more likely to unfreeze this housing market, which you know presumably will lead to a lot of new furniture purchases, a lot of designers getting hired for new projects. And so, you know, even though it's a little strange for us to be talking about dot plots that the Federal Reserve is putting together, uh, it, it really does matter. And this was definitely uh, a sign of optimism for anyone who's been watching this closely over the past year. Absolutely. And and to that point, we have seen already a pickup in, in the last couple of weeks for mortgage applications. And there are signs that people are, are ready to step up and buy. The, the problem, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out, is that many people are not yet ready to sell and let go of those, in many cases, 3% or, or lower mortgage rates that many people around the country still have. You kind of have to think about like the timing of how all of this plays out, right? It's like the Federal Reserve announces that it might cut rates in the future. And of <laughs> course, immediately the stock market, which is very forward looking, jumps on that news. Everyone's really excited and you can sort of make money really quickly. 
But it's going to take a while for this information to kind of circulate through the broader, slower, real economy. You know, just because, you know, the 30-year mortgage ticks down like a, a percentage point is still double what it was a couple years ago. And so I don't think we're going to immediately see this big flood uh, in, in housing activity come forth. I don't think every designer is going to see their inbox flooded over the next few months just because of this move. This is more of a slow thaw. I mean, I think at the end of the day, though, we can accept that this is reasonably good news. In a world where there's not a lot of it, I think uh, for most of the people listening to this podcast, this is at least, uh, if not cause for outright exuberance, at least uh, a a positive-looking indicator for the next years. Absolutely. And I don't want to give anything away from my end-of-year prediction, but I I think it— I think it could possibly lead to some really good things, but I'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, next up, we're going to talk about engineered stone. Last week, Australia announced a new nationwide ban on engineered stone with the goal of preventing workers from contracting an often fatal lung disease called silicosis, the direct result of working with engineered stone. We've talked about this on the show in the past, Fred. What did you make of this announcement? Yes, we have talked about it in the past, and uh, we've known about it for a while, uh, and we've known it's been a problem, but I was frankly shocked to see that Australia just flat out banned uh, the the substance in in their country. Uh, You know, this is the first country in the world to ban engineered stone. Uh, what was your take on it? I mean, it definitely caught me by surprise. I know they were concerned about it, but I didn't. it didn't feel that they were close to a drastic step like this. No, I agree. It was quite surprising. And, and in reading through the Australian press, it seemed that they felt that they had dragged their feet on the asbestos crisis a generation before and, and really didn't want to make that mistake again. So they're just calling for an all-out ban, much to not only our surprise, but to but to many of the contractors and builders uh, and and people who use this material quite regularly in their in their projects. Yeah, I mean, you know, in addition to all these news stories about how unsafe engineered stone was, there were also these articles about how, you know, this is going to make kitchen remodels much more expensive in Australia because of course quartz and engineered stone is uh, often a cheaper alternative to natural stone. And so there are all these, you know, knock-on effects of, of this ban that'll will become clear in Australia and, you know, in the, in the weeks, months, years ahead. Um, but of course, you know, the, I think the, the question for us here in the U.S. is, will this move towards either further restrictions or an outright ban here or in other countries, which is, you know, I mean, it's already big enough when an entire country bans, bans a product, but uh, is this going to spread? It's, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's a big question. It, it is a big question, and and I I have my doubts about whether the United States is is going to follow Australia's lead. I can't remember too many areas where we've where we've looked to Australia to guide <laughs> us on on decisions such as this. But it it certainly feels as though it's going to make people think and and perhaps try and educate people a lot more around the the issues surrounding the use of courts and 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 what this means. Yeah, I mean, I you say that, and I, I agree with you that it's a ban seems unlikely here. But just in the in the immediate wake of the Australian ban, California adopted these emergency measures around, you know, how courts can be cut and worked on. That it's you know seems much tighter than anything they'd had before, and 
you know, while the rest of the country may have its gripes about California, what often ends up happening is because it's such a big market, the safety standards that California implements, everybody else has to follow just because, you know, otherwise they risk, you know, not selling into one of the biggest, it's like what the fourth largest economy in the world or whatever it is. And so if California takes more stringent steps on quartz and engineered stone, then yeah, you can expect like serious, you know, ripple effects here in the U.S. Um I'm I'm taking this as an invitation just to learn more about the health and science considerations at play here. You know, the the quartz companies in general say that if you cut this material uh, under proper working conditions and you take the right precautions, that it's not dangerous and that this is mostly like a worker safety issue. Australia is clearly saying that it, it's just not worth the risk and it's too dangerous and they need to ban it. Um, you know, I mean, without weighing in on that particular debate, I will say one thing that is very clear is that. You know, if an entire country bans your product, it's it's uh, it, it generates a lot of negative publicity. I mean, I feel compelled to say that no one is is accusing courts. You know, no one is saying that it's dangerous simply to own a quartz countertop. You know, this is mostly about fabrication. But I think there will be some people who won't want to deal with that complexity. will just see the headlines saying, oh, quartz is bad and won't, won't want it in their homes. And so I'm sure that, uh, you know, these companies are, are watching this issue like a hawk and it's a very serious issue for them. And of course, it's it's a much more, it's a deadly serious issue for the workers who, who are being exposed to this silica dust and getting, you know, ill in this you know, sometimes fatal, irreversible way. And so I, I, this is this is a very serious issue. And I, I feel like this ban has kind of woken me up to uh, to, to how important it is. And, you know, I, I know that I'll certainly be thinking about it more in the new year. And I'm guessing a lot of other people will, too. It's certainly going to be discussed a great deal. And, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about it in 2024. Okay, moving on. Dupes. Yes, just as serious. Yeah, so we did a story over the summer about the sudden, seemingly sudden popularity of dupes, uh, also known as knockoffs. <laughs> now a new study by Business Insider and YouGov is introducing some statistics around dupes. Apparently more than 70% of Gen Zers, quote unquote, sometimes or always buy less expensive knockoffs of more expensive name brand products. More fuel for the dupes fire here, Dennis. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, again, uh, the the dupe police <laughs> people have to be pretty alarmed to see these to see these numbers. And I wonder, you talked about recently having been with some fellow millennials who confessed to <laughs> yes. you, right, that they that they very much exercised this this practice of of trying to find a lower cost alternative. Yeah, right? I mean one. One correction there is that they did not confess this to me. This was just this was just what you do. You know, you look for dupes. Right. You know, it's 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 part of the right. culture. Yeah, I mean I and I think this statistic in some ways is just not at all surprising. I mean, I, I feel like it really has become very prevalent in the culture. I do think there's this weird element where I feel like people growing up, young people growing up feel like the deck is so stacked against them. Capitalism is a sham. Modern culture is, is never going to let them buy a home or live a happy life. And so buying a dupe is kind of like getting one over on the man almost, so to speak. And I can't believe how old I sound saying that. Uh, <laughs> but, but I do think that, that that is sort of in the culture. And I think, you know, there's some truth to that. But I also think when, when, when you're buying like a dupe of like a high end product, often the person who's, you know, getting uh, getting hurt by it is not not some giant corporation, but uh, you know, a, a 
a designer who makes their money off of uh, designing these products. So it, it, there are real consequences to this, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they are over the over the course of the next few years. Well, and, and and I think what you just touched on is what was so disturbing when we were first talking about this phenomenon of the dupes and and them looking for the often made overseas and and uh, and and taking taking some product that had been designed by an artist or craftsperson and and knocking it off uh, just just made everybody concerned about this next generation which which as we know from all of these recent studies that we've been talking about are about to be the the biggest consumers of luxury products in the in the coming years, right? So, I mean, what were the what were the statistics? It was the year twenty twenty five. Gen Z and millennials are going to be seventy percent of the luxury buyers, according to that Bain research study that we talked about just recently. And do these habits? Does this part of the culture? Uh, make you worried longer term about the the high end home industry because so many people are, are are looking for looking to find the the look for less as as Lulu Little talked about recently <laughs> when we interviewed her on the podcast. I think it's worth saying, and and I, I am concerned about the the love of dupes. But just to play devil's advocate, you know, are the same people who are aggressively looking for dupes are these the people who would who would buy the real thing? Like, would they not just buy some sort of you know, generic product that didn't look like, you know, a high-end thing. And on some level, is the fact that people are even interested in dupes of high-end design an indicator that high-end design matters to the culture in a way that it didn't 40 years ago? You know what I mean? I'm just trying to look at this through a less paranoid uh, mindset. And I do... I do think the fact that like people are even looking for dupes of something indicates that that thing has power that doesn't isn't going away necessarily. I, I I don't disagree, but we always want to be mindful too of what else can we be doing as an industry to to educate people about why you don't want the dupe. And let me tell you about the original. And even if you can't afford the original in its new state, as as so many of the be original people remind us, you can you can find some some great old furniture uh, in antique shops and, and in thrift stores. And, and that's another way to not find a dupe, but a, but a lower cost version of the thing that you might already be looking for. No, completely. And I don't want to be a dupe a dupe apologist, a dupe <laughs> dupe apologist. Uh, I also think it's a challenge to to brands that work in the middle and lower tier of the markets to come up with great design to can you know to come up with a product that is really exciting and sexy for young people, but is affordable. You know, and I think you know we talk about IKEA a lot. I think they're a good example of a brand that you know is capable of doing that. I don't know. It's a very complicated issue, and I, I uh, it definitely concerns me. But I do think we we should try and look at it from uh, from all angles because it's not as simple as just you know, you know, burn the dupes with a torch. The, the dupes are there for a reason, and we need to look at what that reason is. I, I completely agree. And I think there's little doubt that we have brought great clarity to the issue today. So <laughs> I, I, I feel really good that we've, uh, that we've straightened it up in everyone's mind. Okay, moving on, we're going to talk about holiday decorations. The, uh, the New York Times published a fun story the other week on, quote, unquote, the 12 vibes of Christmas. It was a look at different aesthetics for holiday decorating and one of the more hot-button topics was a, a popular TikTok video that criticized minimalist Christmas decor. And I got to say, I was, I was with this young woman and how she felt about uh, minimalist Christmas decor. Let's, uh, let's listen to the clip. 
I have decided that I will not be participating in minimalist beige Christmas this year. If this is what you like, if this is what you want, good for you, do it. Enjoy the hell out of it. It's not for me. I think this is pretty, I think it's simple. I don't think it's giving enough. Not for me, because let me show you what I'm doing. The theme this year is nostalgic early 2000s Christmas. I want all the rainbow lights. I want the mismatched ornaments. I want the random wrapping paper. I want nostalgia. <laughs> she just didn't feel it was giving enough, Fred, that minimalist Christmas. <laughs> I do love the idea that she wants nostalgia and the time period she looks back to is the early 2000s, which yes. is another thing that's making me feel quite old. Um I don't know. I just I thought this was a funny story. Uh, before we get into, uh, you know, quiet luxury Christmas, I, I am I remember when I first started covering design, it was a really big thing for interior designers to do holiday decorating for their clients. That was like a perennial source of income. It was a way that designers got new clients. I don't feel like that's as much of a thing anymore. Am I am I wrong on that? What do you what do you hear on the street? Dennis? You know, it it's funny because I I. I do know several designers that know that that is a regular business for them, that they are absolutely going over to many of their past clients who, if they only see them one time a year, is when they come <laughs> over to decorate for the holidays. So it, it may not be quite the business that it once was, but I, but I know that for many, they, they, they still see that client every year to, to deck <laughs> the halls. Not to bring things down, but we have talked a lot on the show about how, you know, the market is cooling off from the COVID highs. And I, I do wonder if it's like a, an opportunity. Maybe it's a little bit late for this year but for next year for designers to to go about trying to get a little bit more cash in the door and, and maybe introduce themselves to a new client to, to get into holiday decorating if they're they're not doing it already uh but of course now let's talk about uh <laughs> crate and barrel christmas as the new york times <laughs> called called this sort of beige version of christmas it's you know it's the the, the the tiktok video was pointing out these you know it's the sort of white on white scheme with the sort of taupe candles on a you know painted white fireplace uh, i don't know what do, what do you think of that style dennis well i think it's so funny that so many people can really get worked up minimalist christmas versus i mean i i i think that i i think that many designers have very strong feelings and and many that i speak to do lean towards the minimalist christmas i gotta be honest they they want it uh they they think it's a certain level of refinement but i but then others feel like it's it's just not festive enough just not giving enough as that tiktok (laughs) star pointed out and uh and that's where i i tend to lean i feel like i grew up with with all the white lights and then one day my Parents just said no. Enough of that's too stuffy. Let's let's get more festive. We have to have a Thursday show special that's just about white lights versus <laughs> those uh, multicolored lights. Uh, no, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't know if there is a Christmas lights indicator that tells us uh, how people are feeling coming into <laughs> 2024. But I I'm I I find myself in the colored light camp, and I feel like so many designers talk to us about wanting their clients personal expression to come through in their in their design and and so I, I sense that more people this year seem to be uh, seem to be feeling more more colored lights and hopefully that means good things for 2024 agreed all right that's it for the news but there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com including a roundup of January's can't miss industry events and a deep dive into the rise of digital printing we'll return in a minute with a look back on the year but first a quick break 
We're taking a quick break from the show to tell you about Business of Homes industry-leading job board, and who better to do that than BOH's associate publisher, Kim Trapanier. Hi, Kim. Hey, Dennis. So, Kim, this industry-leading job board of ours, tell us about it. Yeah, so Business of Homes job board has been around for the last decade, uh, and it is the industry-leading job board for a very good reason. It's that the people that you want to hire are reading Business of Home. Uh, Our editor-in-chief, Caitlin Peterson, recently told me that a designer shared that she won't hire people unless they come to her through Business of Homes job board. Uh, because she knows that that means that applicant is interested in staying connected, paying attention to what's going on in the industry, um, and is tapped in. Business of home readers only need apply. I love that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I I see some pretty impressive names on the job board. Uh, Tell us who's, who's hiring at the moment. Yeah, I was just looking through this morning. Um, you know, in addition to top design firms all around the country, um, there's definitely tons of showrooms and great manufacturers looking to hire as well. Uh, just today, we've had postings from Young Ha in New York and McDonald's in Minneapolis, Katie Coughlin in Boston, and then also Dadar, Brown Jordan, Left Bank Art, Thomas Lavin, all looking for sales and customer support roles to be filled. Now, I know these jobs get filled pretty quickly. By the time listeners hear this, they probably be new jobs on the job board. So tell me, people that are looking for a job or, or want to post on the board, where should they go? Sure, they can just head to businessofhome.com slash jobs. That's jobs with an S. <laughs> Good to know. All right, Kim, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, 2023 is coming to an end, which means it's time to look back on the year that was, what were the big stories that mattered most, and what can we expect for next year. To do all that, I'm joined by an all-star cast, starting with our editor-in-chief, Caitlin Peterson. Caitlin, welcome. So glad to have you. Thanks, Dennis. Warren Schulberg, our retail editor, is here. Warren? I am here, present. (laughs) So great to have you. Uh, And of course, BOH's executive editor, Fred Nikolaus. You cannot get rid of me. I will will always be here to talk. (laughs) My constant companion throughout it all. Yes. So before we jump into the news and talk about the year's big stories, let's do a quick temperature check. If you had to sum up 2023 in just one word, what would it be and why? I think for me, the word that sums up 2023 is evolving. You know, with the pandemic, we saw this unprecedented demand for design that kind of put everybody's business in a pressure cooker. And I think one of the things my conversation showed me this year was um, if we've slowed down a little bit, it's been a really good moment to to assess where we are, to assess some of the crazy decisions we might have made in the <laughs> thick of, you know, in the thick of that really, really rapid pace. Um and then to start to be a little bit more intentional about either choosing those things or pivoting away from those things. I think that's been, you know, a real hallmark for me of 2023 is asking yourself, do I want this? Why? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's important. Do I want this? Yeah. Uh, Warren, what about you? What do you think? I'm going to go with mushy. <laughs> <laughs> mushy. Yeah. Okay. Tell me more. <laughs> I think coming out of the pandemic, everybody said, okay, it's over. We're done with it. We're back to normal and things are going to pick up. And 
23 was anything but normal. And it wasn't even abnormal. It just was mushy. It was kind of all over the place. And it's really hard to pin down exactly what kind of year it's been, uh, which is why I'm going with mushy. Okay. <laughs> okay. I like it. I like it. Fred, mushy's hard to follow. What do you, what do you got? Mine is kind of the thinking man's mushy, which is <laughs> confused. <laughs> um, but I do, I mean, I would just echo what Warren said. It's a weird time. I mean, I think it's more at the high end of the industry, kind of, which is what I cover. Uh, you know, everyone is at least a little bit relieved that they're not in the position that retailers are, which is, you know, was an absolutely horrible year. Uh, but at least you sort of have the clarity of, okay, times are tough. I think at the higher end and in the trade, there's a lot of, Things are okay. Are they about to get better? Are they about to get worse? I feel like a number of times this year I've interviewed people and I've asked them, like, so how's business going? Like, and they've given me an answer. And at the end, they'd be like, so how is business going? Like, there's a lot, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. And I think, uh, I think Mushy, Mushy probably is a little more eloquent, but, uh, how about you, Dennis? Did you have a word to sum up 2023? Well, it's funny because I, I was thinking about confused very much myself, but I think to the point you were just making, the other word I was thinking of was just was just anxious. I, I think mm -hmm. you talk to people and and they're just anxious. They they're they're hoping things are looking better, but they're but they're really not seeing any reason to think that next year uh, is going to be any easier than than this year from what I from what I see. So so people are. People are anxious. No, no, Happy no New Year. <laughs> <laughs> and what a great way to get us started. Yeah. Uh, ho, ho, ho. Uh, yeah. Well, and I, and I think part of the reason, let's get into the news. I think part of the reason people are anxious is we had a lot of companies that didn't make it through to the end of the year. One of them that we've talked about a lot, obviously, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams. And... We, we've we seen a, a lot of similar companies just have to close up shop, many of them abruptly overnight. Warren, I, I wonder, since since this is an area that you cover a great deal, what's your, what's your sense of what the fallout from all of this has been? You know, I think you have to put the Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams collapse in a, in a bit of context. Um, it certainly was a victim of the slowdown in the furniture business and the overall home furnishings business and the fact that people would rather go out and see Barbie and go on a cruise than uh, buy a new credenza for their living room. So that's part of it. But a lot of Mitchell Gold's problems were self-inflicted. They made bad decisions. They weren't really uh, in great financial shape. And let's not forget that they had a private equity owner that um, basically ma manages by spreadsheet and says, okay, this business is good. And then at 2.30 in the afternoon, when uh, that line crosses the spreadsheet, they go, this business is bad. And, uh, and, and <laughs> so we're five minutes in private equity being thrown under the bus. Okay. That's good. That sounds mm -hmm. about the right tempo. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. It took me so long. You know, normally, <laughs> normally I get to it a lot faster. So, um, so again, you know, Mitchell and Bob's company is going to be the poster child for for the malaise of of the home furnishings business in 23 and that's you know part of that's true but there are some other factors that I think make that special and you have to put put it into context uh you know as you know the company's assets have been bought and uh the new owners are talking about starting the factory up uh, and uh, 
getting products back out there. And so, you know, the Mitchell and Bob saga will will continue. I'm really interested to see what happens with the Surya acquisition. I do think that, you know, it's always a win for the design community. They're planning on turning it into a trade-only brand, and that's always a win for the design community. I do wonder what role the company's retail presence, which will not continue, um, played in its appeal for designers. You know, as much as you trust your designer when you're making a big purchase like that, I do think that sometimes knowing, you know, the comfort of a familiar brand, the comfort of saying, oh, I drive by that store all the time. I do think that differentiated them from competitors at kind of a similar price point and quality in the marketplace. And so, you know, what is the Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams brand for designers if it's not backed by that network of retail stores? I think that's going to be a really interesting piece to watch. Yeah, I also think it's interesting, too, because it's not totally clear to me, by the way, that Surya is going to start the factory up the same as it always was. Will they be able to hire back the same people who made the brand's great furniture? You know, what actually Mitchell Gold Bob Williams will be in 2024 is still an open question. So, you know, and then they also have to try and make good on the customers who got screwed over by all of this, you know, which there's varying people got screwed over to different degrees. So I, I we're still in, you know, we're not at, we're not in the the game's not over yet. I don't I don't follow baseball closely enough to know what inning we're in, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're not in the we're not in the bottom of the ninth there. We're, this is an ongoing story. The, the Mitchell Gold story, you mean, or or sort of all of the ramifications that go along with it? Yeah, I mean, I think like once you saw that Surya was acquiring intellectual property, there's this sense of, okay, well, great, now it'll continue on, everything will be the same, but it won't. As Caitlin pointed out, retail stores are going to go away, that'll change things, the manufacturing will be different, that'll change things, so we we, we just don't know what'll happen, and, and uh, we'll, we'll be tracking it closely in 2024, of course. No, 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 to, to be sure, and I know we've talked about anticipating more of that to, to come, I don't know, Warren, if you have a sense of more companies along the lines of Klossner or others not making it through 2024, perhaps. Yeah, I think there's going to be more. And um, there's a lot of furniture uh, suppliers that are owned by private equity. And again, you can't blame them for everything. But um, there's a lot of furniture companies that even if they're not owned by private equity, owned by family, or even if they're public, that... Um, got used to having free money and low credit and that's over. And unless they have a good balance sheet and have the assets to get through what is likely to be still a, a kind of a slow year in 24, um, we're going to see some more casualties. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and so speaking of interest rates, obviously perhaps one of the biggest stories of this past year for, for every part of the, of the home industry has just been the frozen housing market, right? And so high interest rates and, and people not putting their homes on the market because either they, they know it's not going to get the price they want, uh, and, uh, everyone's been holding back. And so we get all these numbers coming out that suggest it's, it's the worst housing market in the last 13 years. And, uh, and, and you have all these uh, different conversations about, oh, is it better to rent instead of buy? And there's a whole shifting mindset going on in the country. I wonder how this has shown up for, for each of you in the, in the areas that you, that you cover. So I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of people remember back to the 2008, 2009 housing collapse. This one is entirely different. You know, I, I think back then, 
the housing market literally collapsed and and uh, houses were overpriced, people were overextended uh, and housing prices just plummeted like crazy. This time, we're not seeing any of that. Prices are holding up. Uh, demand is high. Uh, it's the supply that is low. And and so you've got very different dynamics. And, um, you know, I think the home furnishings business has done a rotten job targeting <laughs> existing homeowners. You know, those folks aren't going anywhere. Mm. And they've got money. They've got equity in their houses. Whatever improvements they made three or four years ago, there's still lots more to do. And um, I'm shocked that more retailers are not targeting those guys and saying, okay, you're in your house. You're not going anywhere. You should do this. You should buy a new bedroom set. You should redo the kitchen. You should put in a new bathtub. Whatever it is, uh, to me, that's a great opportunity. And I don't see... I don't see the industry jumping on that at all. Caitlin? That is a bummer for retailers. I feel like I've been really heartened to see designers kind of jumping into that space. You know, obviously, renovations in general for people who aren't moving have been big this year. But the other thing I've seen that's been interesting is kind of an embrace of an expert-like offering from a lot of the designers I've talked to. You know, maybe they're not on the expert itself, but I think that's really normalized this idea that you can have a really profitable piece of your business just giving advice. And I've seen a lot of people saying, okay, we're going to offer full service design over here to a select number of clients. But over here, there's all these people who can't quite afford our design fees. They need a little bit of guidance on layouts and material and product selections, but they can do the project management on their own. Um, and really finding a way to monetize that help people buy new product in a smart way that's going to really, you know, increase their experience of living at home. That to me seems really smart and also totally on the rise this year. Well, that's interesting that the designers have gone after that versus the retailers. So that's encouraging. Well, I think designers are much more like nimble operations. You know, I think with retailers are like big, those, you know, the proverbial big cruise ship that takes a couple of days to turn around. It's hard for them to make a change like that. And I do think that like designers are really well positioned because renovations, especially if you're staying in the house while you renovate can be very costly. And if you don't do it in an expert way without great help, then it's uh, hugely painful and hugely annoying. So that's, I think, a great opportunity to look at for 2024. Um, but certainly at the moment, it, it is hurting, I think, everybody in this world because so much of a driver of new home furniture purchases and hiring a designer is moving into a new house and no one is doing that right now. So, you know, there are bright spots, but the uh, the, over, the overall picture is mushy to, to, coin, a, to coin a great uh, design uh, uh, editor that we work with here at Business of Home. Yeah, and and I think also, I mean, I think Warren's point about they're 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 primed they, they, and they can't go anywhere, so so they're 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 waiting for, for someone to come and help. Uh, I I never hear RH talking about how they're gonna. They, they they talk a lot about how the frozen home market is hurting their business, but I don't I don't hear their their plan for what they're gonna do for everyone who's stuck in their homes. Warren, have you heard that from them? You know, they must have uh, must have been on that call that I wasn't on because mm. I have not heard them mention that a bit. Uh, you know, okay. their business their business is tough, and they are. They are very dependent on the new housing market and on people moving, but uh, another retailer that's just not figuring out a way to uh, address current homeowners who have equity, have jobs, and uh, have the money to invest in their homes. 
So. You don't see them being served by a sprawling estate in the English countryside? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, great, great point, Caitlin. And 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 there were many who thought when the European expansion began that that was this in part them anticipating a, a tougher time at, at home or or perhaps growth rates slowing for them at home and did they need to look to to the European market and, and a very uncharted territory for them to to find meaningful new growth to to compensate for that. Do you think that's do you think that's reasonable? I think Europe is in a bigger toilet than the US right now. It's uh it's uh it's a tough market over there. It represents new business for them. But it's a steep learning curve. You know, if, if you listen to them last week, they dialed back a lot of the expectations on that new UK store. They said, this is one of a kind. This is more of a showcase. This is a branding concept. I don't know, Fred, you saw that store. Uh, <laughs> is, it a, is it a store or is it like a ephemeral dream? <laughs> <laughs> it's a mystery wrapped inside an enigma is what it is. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, to be honest and, and candid and fair, it is an incredible location and it's a really beautiful place. And I had a really great time being there. Um, it, you know, it is two hours outside of London. And I think they already knew that, it, you know, this new location was going to be more of like a brand and marketing play than a retail play. And they, they made that clear before the opening, but now they're making clear it is really a brand play. Yep, it is yep. really not a sales <laughs> destination. And I do think there are probably some people sort of questioning like the wisdom of that, uh, overall but i don't know i think this is a really interesting time for rh you know it's funny i was i was thinking back to our last end of year podcast and i think dennis you had predicted that it was like was it rh and material bank we're going to join forces and take over the industry or something like that <laughs> and now now i feel like 12 months later we're in this position where in particular rh is having a, a weird time and you know, for the past 10 years, I think they've really proved this thesis that there is this desire for a luxury, you know, gang, gangbuster, like blockbuster experience at the top end of home retail. And it's really worked. And I think now they're trying to figure out well, what's the next 10 years going to look like. And it's really, it's not totally clear. Is, are they, is it going to work in Europe? Are they going to be able to turn Aspen into this crazy hospitality experience? So it's a very uh, interesting pivot moment for that company, for sure. And you got to give them credit for playing the long game here. You know, they're much less hung up over their stock price uh, next Tuesday and much more looking at, okay, here's the long run and, and here's how we're building a brand. And I give them a lot of credit for that. Well, so shifting gears, let, let's talk about some of the, some of the acquisitions and, and some of the deals that, that happened starting with, with, Pierre Frey uh, acquiring Zubair, uh, which was a which was a big announcement in the in the trade world. Two hundred and twenty six year old wallpaper company. It, it it felt like last year we were imagining there being a lot of consolidation, a lot of people coming together. Uh, do, do we feel like that happened at the rate we thought it might last year? For all of the, whether it was doom and gloom or just sort of you know. Strategic mergers that we predicted. I, I don't think it came to pass in quite the way that we expected. Um, I think when I was talking about that last year, I imagined a lot more roll ups like Surya acquiring Global Views, you know, like that kind of big mm. um, consolidation. I think with Pierre Frey, it's a really, this is a really beautiful marriage of two heritage brands. You know, Pierre Frey has shown itself to be an incredible steward of brands that it's acquired. You know, they acquired Braconnier, Le Manoc, and I think it bodes well for 
what we'll see from Zubair in the future. To me, this is the best kind of industry acquisition, right? Like it's, you know, a strong operator with a beautiful point of view, acquiring another kind of like-minded brand. I think that's the best kind of acquisition. That's the kind that's really easy to get excited about. I also feel to that point that this deal felt as though it even more firmly established Pierre Frey as being just such a force in our industry. And and, and I feel like COVID these past few years ha- has just transformed that that business and they have grown dramatically in, in a lot of different ways, both through acquisitions and, and just in terms of the new product and the, and the way people talk about them and the way that they're showing up. So I feel like they have solidified a leadership position in the industry in, in, in a way that we might not have imagined just a, just a few years ago to, to that point. Fred, what do, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there are basically like two kinds of acquisitions this year. Most of them are what you'd call opportunistic, like a company was hitting really hard times like Mitchell Golden Bob Williams in Syria or Havenly and Interior Defined. That was a huge story last year, and it didn't really get resolved until... Uh, you know, the beginning of this year when Havenly picked up what, what had become interior defined. So most of the acquisitions were a result of the broader industry struggles we're talking about. But then you had, as Caitlin said, this really beautiful marriage between, uh, Pierre Frey and Zubair. And I think what's kind of interesting about that, and I've heard this from a lot of people, is that in this kind of new trade world where like pretty much anybody can get anything online, like buying is increasingly flat. Anyone can make their product look good online with it with a decent photo. AI is only going to make that worse or better, depending on your opinion. The one thing you really can't fake is like authenticity and history and heritage. You know, if you've been around for 200 years and people know that, that is a very valuable asset. And so I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who are thinking about acquiring companies and they're like, look, what we're really looking for is history because that's the one thing we can't do on our own. And so I think you're going to see more stuff like that uh, in the year to come. But I imagine on the, the retail side of the industry, there's there's a lot more opportunistic uh, buys that uh, Warren can probably talk about. <laughs> Warren, what do you want to jump in here? Yeah, when I talk to guys who do M&A deals, they've said for the last uh, two years that they just expect a huge surge in mergers and acquisitions. And we really haven't seen it. I mean, it's there's been some, but huge surge? I don't think so. So... Um, mm. Uh, they're still saying 24 is going to be more. Their their credibility leaves a little bit to be desired <laughs> at this point. I don't know. Has everyone just like gotten really lean for the you know last couple of years, and we're just waiting for them to fall yeah. apart still? Or it's kind of <laughs> depressing. I don't know. Were you guys expecting more? Well, I, I love 24. There's going to be more. Survive yeah. till 25 <laughs> and thrive. Yeah, all these great. 26 is just a fix. For, yeah. Um, what rhymes with seven? 27. Well, furniture heaven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think like all of the conditions are there for a, a, like a surge in mergers and acquisitions. The problem is just that like money is really tight. It's more expensive to borrow money than it, than it has been in a long time. Banks are, you know, the other thing we didn't talk about was the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and how there was this big regional banking crisis. So everybody who banks, especially people who follow the furniture industry and understand that it is, it is in distress, they're not looking to loan money for someone to buy a, a furniture company. So I think that like all of the, you know, ground conditions are right. It's just that the people with bags of money are, are uh, holding them pretty tight right now. Well, I think also to pick up on the earlier point you were making, Fred, I think this was the year that 
companies who had been trying to figure out how to reposition themselves because they were heritage brands suddenly found the strength of what having been around for a long time really means as a lot of these newer companies and all these disruptors sort of fell by the wayside. And Pierre Frey was like, oh, let's go acquire a 225-year-old wallpaper company to remind you how great heritage and history really is. And, and, and I think a lot of companies that were able to lean into that, we talked to Sanderson early in the year and same, same sort of thing. They're, they're sort of trying to, to reposition themselves, but also just acknowledging that some of these companies that have been around for a long time have been around for a long time for a reason. This is hardly a heritage brand, but, but one of the companies that had been around for a long time that, that went away and is, is trying to resurrect itself in some way, Warren, was Bed Bath & Beyond, something that you wrote about a great deal this past year. Yeah, I made my living off of writing about Bed Bath & Beyond <laughs> this year. So uh, uh, yeah, within the context of home furnishings retailing, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond was indeed a legacy brand. They were 50 years old. They were the dominant player in that uh, housewares and soft home category. And uh, customers loved them. And so their collapse uh, this past spring uh was uh, shocking. You know, it had been coming and been going downhill. But I think everybody kept saying, oh, they're going to find a way to make this work. And uh, and they didn't. Are there lessons in that for other retailers to take into 24? Are there things that Bad Bath & Beyond did wrong that, the, you know, the rest of the industry could at least say, okay, well, not that? Well, depending on how far you want to go back, they stuck with their business model too long. And, mm -hmm. and that was under the two administrations uh, previous, and they refused to make changes. They were late to the internet. Their stores were were crap, and um, and uh, they they and yet we loved them anyway. And yet we loved them exactly. You know, um, so uh, you know, reevaluating your business on a regular basis is just critical. Um, and then when they finally did, and they brought in new management. Uh, they radically redid everything and created a business plan that was poorly suited for the structure of the company. And that's a whole nother podcast some other time. <laughs> but but they uh, they had a they had a plan that they were unable to execute from the start, and and it was also too radical for their customer to accept. So again. Uh, reevaluate your business. And when you make changes, don't go from A to Z in one step because your customer is not going to follow you. Yeah, no, it, it certainly certainly sounds like a, like a textbook uh, lesson of, of things not to not to do. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps uh, we, we should all be studying the many years of Bed Bath & Beyond's mistakes to to learn what what not to do. I don't feel like there was any business that went away that looked like they were doing everything right though this this past <laughs> year, right? Like wow, really? They went away. They were doing everything the way you're supposed to. I can't I can't think of one of them, uh, private equity owned or not. But we'll we'll see what happens in the in the coming year. It sounds like we're thinking more uh, more fallout from all of that to uh, to come. Perhaps perhaps one of the one of the things that will help accelerate uh, the, the, the upcoming dramatic changes in, in the industry is the next thing we're going to talk about, which is the rise of AI, which we talked a little bit about in last year's show, imagining that it might tiptoe its way into the industry in a meaningful way. It certainly 
looks like this year between ChatGPT and MidJourney and uh, and and some of the tools that are starting to be developed that this is this is really showing up in a in a big way. Caitlin, for designers, is this top of mind? Would you say AI and and what it portends? I don't think universally, but I think it is increasingly looking incredibly relevant. I feel like back in March, I traveled with the leaders of Design Council. One of the big speakers at that event um, was a professor. Um, we were in Israel, and he was talking about his research, his you know exploration of AI, and really presenting AI in a lot of ways, sort of as a concept um, for creative entrepreneurs, how it could help you, what to be afraid of, how to kind of start to harness it or you know, think about how it could apply to your business. And that felt that felt spot on for the moment. And it's so interesting to me that, you know, if you look back at that talk now, you know, it's exactly what we needed in March. And we've moved so far from that moment now to the point that people really are using AI for presentations, for inspiration. I use it to make my emails nicer. Like, you know, it, it is sort of folded into the daily fabric of a lot of offices, design offices and otherwise. I think it's a pretty shocking and dramatic transformation. I don't know that I would have predicted this last year. Yeah. Fred, what's your what's your sense? I think there's this weird little distinction where when you ask people, like, is AI a big deal in your world? What you're kind of asking them or the way they interpret the question is like, is it going to replace my job or is it going to you know, get rid of me? I think there's this sort of like automatic like, oh, no, AI, who cares about that? That's another world. But then you're like, oh, so like, do you use ChatGPT to write, to write Instagram captions? And they're like, yeah, of course I do. You know, or like, do you use ChatGPT to like help you do marketing? Yeah, obviously everybody does. So I think like there are a lot of designers using stuff like ChatGPT in MidJourney. And I think that like in as much as it's all over the headlines everywhere, it takes a long time to filter down into the culture. And design is not, uh, you know, a famously tech-forward industry, so it's taking longer to get to get to us. But I think it's already being used by many, many people uh, I know personally uh, in their day-to-day business. And when you look at sort of the past big waves of technology like crypto or the metaverse, it's like it was fun to talk about, but how many designers have some crypto project? How many designers have a big presence in the metaverse? I would say, you know, single digits, whereas... AI, yeah, they're using it. They're playing with it. And Warren, it seems to come up on a lot of retail earnings calls that I'm on. They 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 sure talk about, oh, you bet you were using AI in all sorts of ways. What's your sense of how it's showing up in your world? There's a lot of talk about it, uh, even though a lot of people uh, on the retail side uh, confuse AI with A1 steak sauce. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they're still not sure. Uh, I don't know. I, and I guess I am, uh, I am, uh, an old cynic, but, um, to me, this is the same conversation we had about the metaverse two years ago. There's a problem of like hype. When people talk about this stuff, it's like they get on stage, they have a cool haircut. We've had some of them on stage at the, the business of home, future of home conference, uh, several times. They're like, AI is going to change everything. And there's this natural reaction to go like, okay, yeah, call me when it really matters. But I think that like, Unlike the metaverse, I would say AI actually is really working its way into a lot of people I know's daily, you know, uh, daily suite of tools that they use. Now, does that mean it's going to like upend business as usual for everybody? No, I don't think that's the case. But I do think it's going to make a difference uh, in a, for a lot of designers. I think it's, I think it's already part of their suite of tools. I think next year we're going to see even more tools roll out. I think the tools you're already using will have AI in them, stuff like SketchUp and Canva. And so I don't know. I, I agree, Warren, that it's not going to, you know, completely 
turn the world into some sort of Matrix-like hellscape, but I do think it, it matters. And you're probably right. I, 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 <laughs> I don't pretend to be objective about this. <laughs> I think the interesting thing, too, though, is, you know, Fred, going off of piggybacking on what you said about tools, you could ask designers next year, you know, oh, are you using AI? And, you know, separate from, is it going to replace that my job? SketchUp might be using AI and they're using those features in SketchUp and you don't even know. Yeah, I think that's I an interesting piece too, is that this could be poised to change the way a lot of us do business and no one sticks the sticker on it that says with AI, you know, you can just get some of those system updates and start to really benefit from the technology without having to think about it too hard. One of the interesting things I'm just sitting here thinking through that too, is how that changes like a designer's workflow. If AI starts to shrink the number of hours it takes to solve a problem, if it means that you can move through a project faster, if it helps you systemize in a way that, you know, speeds you through some of the development or management of a project, um, that's a really interesting thing, I think, to look out for. And if this year was any indication, it feels like that's probably coming a lot faster than we expect it to. Um, but that's really poised to change, you know, how much work you can take, what your team looks like, and how much you should be charging for the work that you're doing. Yeah, it's it's funny you should say that, Caitlin, because I was going to pitch an article at our next meeting, which is <laughs> no, sorry, but it was it was going to be like, will AI lead to the end of hourly billing? Just because if yeah. you, if you hop into SketchUp and it kind of already knows your design style, you load up the you let's know, chamfer this edge, let's you know like arch yeah. this cabinet, yeah, yeah here's get, the plan. Exactly. And then you just make a few changes, a few tweaks. Now, obviously, there's still a lot of work to do in making it actually come to life. But in terms of that phase of the project, if it gets a lot shorter, I think a lot of designers are going to be pressured to come up with another way to charge. Anyway, this I mean, is a, maybe, maybe this is a, maybe you're right. This well, is well, maybe another also, podcast, but yeah. But like, I mean, can AI, can some, can something predict like, oh, you haven't followed up with this vendor this week, write that email for you and get an update. Like, you know, there's so much that actually could probably be predictable or, you know, predictive and systemized. It's really interesting. What are we and let's and let's get to let's get to predictions for for 2024 and what we are imagining really might might happen. Uh, Warren, to that to that point, do you have any any big predictions for us in, in 2024? Again, I'm looking at a continuation of mushy for at least the first part of the year. And I think uh, predicting further out than that is uh is dangerous. Uh, you got two wars going on in the world. You got an election that's going to probably tear this country up in shreds. And uh, the consumer may not be in a great mood next year. So again, I'm not looking for a big recovery. Yeah. Well, that, that certainly sounds reasonable. Caitlin, what about you? I was thinking about this a lot more in terms of sort of internally in a designer's business and kind of from a mindset perspective. And I do think you know, maybe it's a continuation of where I started at the top of the episode. You know, I look at 2024 as hopefully a period of reflection and micro adjustments. Um, we had to map out a few months ago what we thought, you know, our, our magazine theme should be for 2024, which is a really good moment to kind of sit and think about where we are and where we're going. And and we focused a lot on on that idea of taking a moment to look at where you are, look at how you've grown, look at how you've evolved, and then make the the you know the small adjustments that that will really get you into a good place in your business where you feel like you've got control, you've got room to breathe, and you've got you know new opportunities on the horizon. Um, having the bandwidth to see how much you've changed, see what you like, you know, let go of the things you don't. I think 
that's something that we're going to see a lot in 2024 as designers look at the kind of businesses they want to have. Okay. All right. I like that. Uh, Fred, what do you think? Well, I went back and looked at some uh, year-end predictions I've made in the past, and a great one was House is going to go public next year. <laughs> Three years later, 100% has not happened. I cannot conf- <laughs> confidently predict it's going to go public next year either. Uh, I just this Watch is it kind happens of, January 2nd. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't want to make any economic predictions because it's very difficult to make, and as if I did, I would probably in the Warren camp, be in the Warren camp of uh, continued mushiness. Mushiness with a cloud of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, but I do think... Um, one thing I've just, uh, I'm, I'm excited and I hope will happen next year is that we'll see kind of new stars emerge in the interior design industry. Like, I've been noticing that Colin King, former podcast guest, I might add, has been like everywhere mm. recently, really making the rounds, collections everywhere. He's been in the media a lot. And I kind of feel like we're sort of due for the next generation of, you know, the next uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines is the next... Uh, Kelly Wurstler's, the next Athena Calderon's, and I'm really excited to see who sort of emerges from our world to to take that spot. I would I would put Colin King in the running to be to be uh, to be one of those types of people, but there's lots of very talented, charismatic designers out there. We all know a few of them, so uh, that's that's one kind of fun, buzzy thing I'm going to be watching for next year. And don't and don't count Martha out. You know she's she, <laughs> never she's never not was. going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Still going strong. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. Dennis, how about you? What's your prediction for 2024? Okay, so I'm going to completely take the other side to all of this negativity, uncharacteristically, <laughs> because I went back and listened to my predictions last year, and I was so negative about rising rates and, and all of the things that were going to happen. I actually think that we've all gotten so negative that that, that the opposite might really happen. And, and I think we were talking earlier about where are the IPOs? Where are all the big mergers? I think there's so much pent-up demand. And I think, Caitlin, you made the point earlier. So many companies have leaned down. So many companies are running so efficiently. They laid off people a year ago when we all thought there was going to be a recession. All these big companies have tons of cash. I think AI has the, has the potential to blow up into this huge euphoria in the coming year. We haven't seen where are all the initial public offerings of all these little tiny AI companies you've never heard of. They're waiting to come public. And maybe this is the year they do. Maybe interest rates really do come down. Maybe the housing market really does reopen and takes everybody by surprise. We're also negative about the elections and about everything else we're imagining. I just think, what if what if exactly the opposite happens? We we get through the early part of next year and just people go bananas with excitement and euphoria. And and I feel like AI already saved the stock market this past year. Fred made the point earlier about Silicon Valley Bank. We were about to slip into a banking crisis and then ChatGPT and all the excitement about AI came along and suddenly NVIDIA and all the magnificent seven stocks just took over everyone's attention. And I think that has the potential to absolutely happen again in the in the coming year. So I think everyone's negative, but there is so much cash on the sidelines. There are so many deals waiting to happen that I think the the real surprise could be what if it's just utter euphoria in, in 2024? I like so, your 2024, I'm, Dennis. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put the age of Aquarius underneath that little yes. spiel, Dennis. God, uh, I, I hope you're great. right. I hope you're right. Dennis. Well, I just think contrarian says, you know what? Everyone's everyone's negative. Let's let's find the the positive in it. So that that's what I'm going for. 
Yeah, can you share whatever it is that you're that you're on so we can all have some of this too? It feels like a cologne, like Dennis Scully, Euphoria by Dennis Scully. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'll be wearing in 2024. Well, yes, that's Euphoria. Thank you very yes, much. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I I can't thank you all enough for making the time to come and have this discussion. It was a great conversation, and I hope that. Uh, that my prediction is more correct than, uh, than than some of the more negative ones Definitely. in the in the group. But it was it was great to hear from all of you. So thank you. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks. Happy holidays. Okay, we're back. We're getting to the end of the show here. But before we go, we'd like to take a second to highlight anything going on in the industry that might have caught our eye. Fred? Well, uh, this week, the listeners of this podcast caught my eye. <laughs> um, this is, this is uh, we're, we're coming up on the, the end of the first calendar year of, of the Thursday show. And it's just, uh, if I can get uh, sentimental for a minute, it's been just really nice to hear from, from listeners to the show, to get notes, uh, to read reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, subtle hint, if you are enjoying the show, definitely leave us a review on, uh, on Apple Podcasts. But it's been, it's been so nice to connect with people. We love hearing from you. I've had so many fun Instagram DM conversations conversations about topics we've talked about on the show. So uh, hopeful for much more of that to come in, in 2024. Dennis, how about you? What caught your eye? Well, I saw that our sister publication, Domino, did a fun real estate roundup. We, we talk a lot about the hot areas of the country on this show. And Domino did a little roundup that looked at both the top Zillow searches and, and what town and or real estate area was the was the top search there. And they also incorporated the Realtor.com forecast for the top housing market. And interestingly, so Westchester, Pennsylvania was the top Zillow search. And uh, that's about an hour or so outside of Philly. And that seems to be an area where quite a few people want to move. But also four of the of the top uh, places on the Zillow search were in the uh, in the nutmeg state, the state of Connecticut. So that mm. was interesting uh, because that is the uh, the nearby state to, to New York here. And so a lot of people uh, looking to buy homes in Connecticut. And I don't blame them. It's a lovely part of the country. <laughs> and uh, and it looks like uh, what the what Realtor.com is predicting for the top housing market in uh, in 2024 is. Uh, Toledo, Ohio. So hmm. that was a that was an unexpected one. So a lot of people looking to uh, perhaps move more towards the uh, the Midwest part of the country. What do you make of that, Fred? Well, uh, it kind of calls to mind uh, uh, this Monday's episode with Brooks Morrison, where she talked about bringing the design social to markets across across the country that were overlooked. She called them pockets of gold, which I which I liked. <laughs> and so I don't know. I think I think this data is really interesting, and it's a good thing to keep in mind for maybe especially for brands out there looking where to where to reach design that is not New York, LA, and Texas. There's probably a lot of interesting uh, tidbits in there. Well, and I think that was exactly the message that uh, that maybe we've spoken so much about Texas and New York and California that maybe <laughs> it's an important reminder to... Uh, to 2024 is Toledo's year, is what my takeaway <laughs> is. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. We're taking two weeks off, but we'll be back with you on January 4th. Until then, have a lovely holiday and best wishes for the new year. <laughs>